Knowing things provides us with a sense of control, safety, and security. When I know things, I'm in my comfort zone. Things are familiar, predictable, however unfounded in the future they are. We cope by projecting our stories into the future based on what we know from the past, giving us something to reference, however true or false. Peace and abundance, y'all. Welcome to the Creation for Liberation podcast, where we express wisdom to decolonize creativity, mindfully care for ourselves and our communities, and incite an inner revolution for outer transformation. I'm your host, Chetna Mehta, and as a third culture kid, artist, and wellness facilitator, I work with brown and black women and women of the diaspora to reclaim our creative inheritance and to actualize and embody our most aware, aligned, and connected selves. My guests and I will ignite you and invite you to make, move, and manifest your liberation for a world of compassion and connection, one creation at a time. Peace and warmth, dear people. Here we are for our February offering of the Creation for Liberation podcast. We're coming out with this episode slightly past the new moon. But here we are, themed today on I don't know, and in that, I am free. So let's start ritualistically with some inspirations as of late. There are two things that I want to share here. One is morning pages. Maybe you're familiar with this practice. Maybe you've read The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. Maybe you've had a relationship with morning pages in the past. Maybe you haven't. I've been on and off with this practice for a number of years, and through the pandemic, I made it a devoted practice because it's helped me declutter my brain. It's helped me pursue ideas that are floating around in my conscious mind and even in my subconscious mind, and I've brought those actions to tangibility through this practice of morning pages. Recently, though, I want to add here, I've started evening pages on a spacious day, on a day where I make it a priority, I also add in an evening pages practice. I bring my journal into bed, and I may not reach three pages of free association writing. Sometimes I just reach two, and that's good enough for me. But what I've noticed is that it actually assists me in falling asleep with a little bit more peace and ease than if I didn't do evening pages. It's a beautiful chance to offload some of the weight of the day onto the pages, which I, of course, don't revisit because why would I unless I've indicated it to myself through a star in the margin if there's an idea that I want to pursue further. That's something I do both with morning pages and evening pages. In the margins, I will add stars Whenever an idea comes up, a curiosity that I want to follow, um, something I want to pursue, I will start so that I know to return exactly to that point as a reminder to take further action on it. I love that practice because yes, it allows me to declutter my mind, but every now and then there'll be a gem in there. (laughs) Sometimes there'll be hella gems in one entry, sometimes zero, and that's okay. Because when they come, 
I appreciate them by honoring them and revisiting them and pursuing them with my action. So all to say, whatever your relationship is with morning pages, evening pages is a whole nother thing. I mean, it's very similar. It's essentially the same practice. It's just a different time of day. And I've noticed its positive impact on my sleep. Also, when I advise or encourage folks to do morning pages or to be exposed to the artist way, which is a beautiful program for unearthening creativity in general, if you're not familiar with it, I really invite folks to let it serve them. So I don't know how Julia Cameron would feel about this, but I really am all about small and specific successes so that we can be invited into a practice that didn't exist in our lives prior. And if it means doing two pages instead of three pages, or if it means doing it at any point in the day when you have the time and the space, it's better than not doing it at all. And for me, I try to do it in the morning because it really helps me start my day with a fresh perspective. And I do it in the evening just before bed because it helps me offload a bit from the day and ease me into rest more consciously. I also notice I dream more. The second thing I want to share here is that I've started to sync my devotion chart, which I talked about in a previous episode, in alignment with the moon phases. So very perfectly, the last new moon was on January 31st, just a few days ago, depending on when you heard this, you're hearing this podcast. So I'm syncing this next cycle of my devotion chart with the moon phases while also noting my menstrual moon cycle. And so I'm going to note that on my chart. This is inspired by Abundant Creativity alumni Srila Nanbudiri, who shared the Aluna method with me and a few other masterminds recently from Julia Aluna, who draws from the ancestral wisdom in Afro-Brazilian philosophy, really allowing our menstrual cycles to show us what we're capable of when we might need to rest or manifest. So it feels really good to integrate all these cycles in observance of my devotional practices and I'm really excited to see what I can learn. Check out the show notes for more resources on the devotion chart and the Aluna method. Before we get into the thicky thick of this episode, I wanna share with you a few events that are coming up to gather live albeit virtually, in support of your creativity and your compassion and your community. Creative Sangha has been reinstated and this is a beautiful space to come together, be with creatives, meditate in stillness, meditate in movement, and share with one another as we witness, listen, speak, express together. I really love this group. I walk away from it each time with more inspiration, with ideas, with fresh perspective. And it happens every month on the fourth Monday of each month. So check that out. It's donation-based. We also have a workshop in March on reclaiming creativity. This is an appetizer workshop for the three-month Abundant Creativity Program where we've distilled some of the most potent pieces of wisdom from month one of the program and put it in this two-hour workshop. It's fun, it's multifaceted, it's informative and educational and also expressive and playful. And the last thing I want to share here is something that I am stretching 
in the richest and juiciest way for myself to offer. It is the first affinity group that is the specific that Mosaic Eye has offered and it speaks to my lineage and the ways in which I want to expand my community. And this is a 10-week support group for Desi women or South Asian women to claim liberation beyond intergenerational patriarchy. I've noticed so much how we as Desi women or South Asian women hold a particular set of traumas around intergenerational patriarchy, even amidst our diverse, nuanced, complex, and assorted life experiences. Really, this is a long-term, two-and-a-half-month offering to show up every week, be in community with other Desi and South Asian women, and explore on the court personal identity, sexuality, female friendships, mother energy, joy, rage, sadness, body wisdom, and intuition. All of these really beautiful and empowering explorations beyond patriarchal conditioning that could be so divisive and disconnecting. So check it out. All of those links are also in the show notes. In this episode, we explore how we as conscious, big-brained humans have a strong tendency to know, to inquire, to seek understanding, and to share answers. We'll talk about how this tendency to know serves us in profound and widely known ways and how it doesn't serve us, but can actually snuff out our creativity, possibility, and awareness of our existential place in the vast cosmic order. Let's talk first about how knowing serves us. You probably know all this, or not. Knowing things provides us with a sense of control, safety, and security. When I know things, I'm in my comfort zone. Things are familiar, predictable. I feel like I have control and choice. For example, I know a bit about emotions and how they move through us, which makes me relatively comfortable with feelings in myself and others because I've seen time and again how emotions naturally shift and flow through us when we let them. Someone who is a mathematician may feel safe in the realms of calculus or someone who lives well integrated in nature may know a good amount about the fauna and flora nearby. A speaker may know their talk really well after rehearsing it 200 times, which helps them go up in front of 5,000 people feeling more prepared and secure than if they didn't know the speech, quote, like the back of their hand. Even with what I know that I don't know, Arabic, astrophysics, and quite frankly, how to properly twerk, I know that I can learn it if I wanted to. I also know that if I didn't want to learn it, I could avoid it. Or I could just accept that I don't know. And that feels more within my control because I choose to stay not knowing. I know what I don't know. Knowing is looked at admirably in our culture. If you know shit, you're smart, you're useful, you're needed, you're worthy. Knowing is most valued culturally, especially in the West, when it emerges from intellect, when it's quote-unquote fact, rational, or scientifically backed. Experts become experts when they know a bunch of stuff about something that's both reliable and replicable. Knowing from the heart 
from intuition or from the gut without eloquent explanation often doesn't get regarded very seriously in our patriarchal colonial culture. And it adds more nuance to what it means to know something. For example, if I know a job or relationship isn't right for me, even though it doesn't make sense or I don't have a bullet pointed list of why beyond just, I know, it doesn't feel justified to leave. Especially if, for example, that job is giving me all the affirmations within capitalism of how successful I am. How many of us are in or have stayed in misaligned situations because while we know or knew, we just couldn't get our mind to accept that knowing without all the evidence is good enough. Now there's some history here that I feel is important to bring in. Really to zoom out and acknowledge that this tendency to quote-unquote know from the intellect is not just a thing of modern day. It's not just you or me or a tendency that we might have as individuals. During the Renaissance, the quote-unquote age of reason in the 18th century, which was also a time of re-establishment of Euro-colonial forces, human rationalism and individualism emerged as supreme, thereby taking the power away from the church and embedding it more in science. This was really important for science and necessary to redistribute the power at the time. But what it also did was it invalidated indigenous, inherent, and mystical wisdom. The wisdom in nature and in the reality that's unexplained and not known within the bounds of science. Today, we still put a lot of emphasis on rationalism, the activity in our heads, which is often disembodying ourselves from the wisdom and knowing of the body, which is so much more abstract, without much language and sensibility or rationale. We're constantly trying to figure out our feelings or rationalize ourselves out of leaving a job or a relationship or a situation that just doesn't feel aligned. We live in our heads instead of the fullness of our bodies as a way to feel safe in an attempt to control what we don't know by mulling it over again and again and again. We're so easily on the gerbil wheel of the mind, running and running and running with the quickness and urgency of our thoughts. Anxiety, insomnia, depression, and burnout are all reinforced by incessantly running the gerbil wheel. We'll do another episode on this gerbil wheel and the tendency and strategy of hyper-intellectualization because it's deep and it's potent. For this episode, I do want to lean on story as a way to reflect our human capacity to not know and to surrender and acknowledge peacefully what we don't know or can't know. I also have to name how knowing does not serve us when we think we know something, but actually we don't. I and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next month, but we make plans anyway. Sometimes we grasp onto those plans and pretend like they're certain. There's nothing wrong with making plans. Of course, we need to be oriented to some degree in the future to know what we're working toward in the present. But when we do cling on to those plans as if they are certain, we are setting ourselves up for great heartbreak and deep disappointment. 
Social anxiety is caused by a sense of false knowing, often based on past experiences. For example, this knowing may manifest as thoughts that sound like, I'll sound stupid when I speak up at the gathering. People will judge, misunderstand, or reject me. I'm not going to have any fun. This is going to be so awkward. I'm going to be so awkward. Even though these thoughts are painful, they offer a sense of control, of predictability, however unfounded in the future they are, which can feel more comfortable than sitting with the fact that we literally have no idea what's about to actually happen at the gathering or whether we'll even make it there. Sitting with the gaping emptiness of what the future actually is feels far more scary. We cope by projecting our stories into the future based on what we know from the past, giving us something to reference, however true or false. Author and speaker Liz Wiseman said, it's in the seeking, not knowing, that we find truth. When we think we know, we ask less questions. We leave less room for unknown possibilities. We seek less. Instead, we settle with comfort, familiarity, and the illusion of control. We approach people in our lives or certain types of people, seemingly unfamiliar situations or experiences like we know, when actually we're assuming. We're bringing the past into the present as if it's fact. We're less likely to meet the moment as it is, new, fresh, and unknown. Of course, when we've experienced trauma, like practically all of us, we hold on to those past experiences as a way to keep us safe in the future, as a way to avoid having that happen again. We bring our past into the present because it gives us a sense that we know what's here or what's going to happen per our past experiences. And sometimes it does keep us safe. And sometimes it just keeps us small. There is a freedom, though, in not knowing. When we can consciously allow ourselves to not know. It was my 33rd birthday and I took a celebratory tab of LSD gifted to me by my friend Fu. And I spent most of the day in my garden, praying to the peach tree in the corner, eating cashews, contemplating the life perspective of spiders in the grass, dancing barefoot, admiring the dry marigolds in my planter box and vowing to the sun that I will be with it till it retired below the horizon for the day. At night when I was inside, I looked out the window at the moon and suddenly the fact that I don't know dawned on me in a new way. I threw up my hands and started laughing hysterically yelling, I don't know, to the heavens above me. It felt so liberating. There was no shame, no guilt, no regret at not knowing. There was no fear at all at not knowing. It just was. And it was humbling and empowering and relieving simultaneously. What would it be like if we let ourselves not know the things that we don't know? What if we gave ourselves permission to admit when we don't know, what if we gave ourselves permission to not try so damn hard to figure it all out and to let the unknown be unknown? For now, at least. Now, don't get me wrong. I appreciate a colleague, a waiter, or a teacher saying, I don't know, but let me find out. 
That's beautiful, obviously. I love a good quest for knowledge, wisdom, solutions, and understanding. It's what infuses life for me with challenge and excitement. But I'm talking about the shit that we may never know or be able to control. Like what someone else is really thinking or feeling unless they express it. Or what's really out there in the vast, expansive, infinite universe. Or why we are the way that we are. Or what happens after we die. We all have chosen stories that attempt to answer these questions that infuse our lives perhaps with more meaning or purpose or certainty amidst the existential uncertainty. But what would it be like to allow ourselves to be more confused than sure? To lean into the uncertainty and feel the scary but freeing emptiness of not having all the answers. When we allow ourselves to not know, without guilt or shame, perhaps alongside fear, could we access more possibilities? Possibilities that exist outside of what our minds could perceive in this moment? Possibilities within the realms of what we don't know and what we don't even know that we don't know? Whoa. I'd like to share a story here that was also recently shared in the Moon Times Digest on the same topic of the freedom of not knowing. This is a story of when I was forced, in a way, to accept what I don't know. To let the forces beyond me guide me to something that I wouldn't have even conceived of myself. I hold the story close to me now because it's a reminder of the beauty that can come from surrender. I need this reminder as much as anyone else might, and I speak it out here as an invitation perhaps for you to reflect on when you trusted on something more than what you know. I had just tested positive for COVID-19 and was beginning my 10-day isolation period. The Delta variant, as well as bouts of grief and rage, were streaming through my blood as I was quarantining in a house in Westminster, Colorado, with heartbreak thick in the air between a newly minted former partner and I. With us was our beloved adopted dog, Nejma, who I wanted to run away with as soon as possible, though her strong propensity to bite the ankles of any unfamiliar humans that crossed her was also a bit of a barrier. If you told me about this amalgamation of unfortunate circumstances eight months prior, I would have said, holy shit, that sounds like a complete nightmare. In fact, years before, I had heard about a friend who had to live with her ex for a month before moving out and fear immediately flowed through me as my brain reacted with, that sounds like the worst, I never want to be in that situation. As a cherry on top of a shit pile, the media was blasting bits of information like, the Delta variant is highly contagious, more than two times prior variants. And some data suggest that the Delta variant might cause more severe illness than previous strains. In these days of Omicron and whatever else comes next, the Delta strain is stale news. But at the time, it was a tender topic. The deep anguish that I was experiencing simultaneously was tender too. My seven-year partnership had tragically, though necessarily, reached its sudden end. I was being called to shift my life entirely, 
to let die what we had built over the years and to step into something completely new and utterly unknown. The one thing my heart did know was that I needed to return to the Bay Area to be close to my family and friends. The rest, I was in the dark. I had no idea where I'd live, how to get there, whether I could bring Nejma, whether she wanted to be uprooted in that way, what to take, how to move my stuff, how to break the news of my forthcoming divorce to my family, how to file for divorce, and so many other swirling and bombarding questions. On a Monday, two days prior to getting my COVID test results, I began to develop a vivid fantasy of driving from Colorado to California with Nejma in a trunk full of my things, stopping in New Mexico and Arizona to camp along the way of a liberating road trip rooted in self-trust and transformation. I'd go to my parents' house for a while before figuring out my next steps, and I would leave promptly later that week. Ha! I knew precisely what I was going to (sighs) do. This false knowing like knowing often does, gave me a sense of safety, security, and control of the uncertainty. It helped me cope with the existential dread of the vast unknown. It served its purpose for a whole day and a half. The universe had other plans. On Tuesday, I learned that my parents' rental property does not allow dogs, and Nejma is not a dog that could go under the radar. She's loud, gorgeous, makes dog friends easily, and unabashedly claims her space. On Wednesday, my test results came in, and someone somewhere up there exclaimed, Bitch, you need to stay put and chill the fuck out. We got you. Of course, my mind was frazzled and resistant to what was happening. Now what the hell am I going to do? I'm stuck here. What did I do to deserve this? Why me? I hate everything. Time felt as heavy and slow as bitter molasses. I felt hopeless, scared, pathetically sorry for myself, and incredibly scarce. I was in a painfully uncomfortable space between no longer and not yet. In the darkness of liminality, the state of transition between one major stage and the next, like a rite of passage. My ego's drive to protect me by knowing and controlling for the future was highly inflated, and hyperactive. Ten days felt like a prison sentence. I became more tired by my mind's relentless and futile attempt to problem fix. There was too much I didn't know. There was too much I couldn't figure out in the moment. I couldn't go anywhere, and that was that. I eventually fell to my knees in surrender. Surely I was assisted. Surely there are forces that are on my side rooting for my well-being. I chose finally to leave it to them. My inner gaze shifted from me to beyond me. This realization allowed me even a little bit of space to laugh at the absurdity of this multi-layered situation and then some that I had feared for years. Yet there I was, still alive and breathing through it. A few days later, I was talking to my dear friend Shilpa, and in my space of surrender, There was room for my curiosity to ask how she was doing. This was surprising for me, even in the moment, as it could have felt so necessary to dwell in my own crisis as a way to control it. But I seemed to have been trusting that I was being supported even without knowing exactly how. 
Shilpa then told me that she had an opening in her backyard tiny house in Berkeley, California, which was a three to six month artist residence for an artist to live in, make art, and tend to the garden. She shared this casually, not knowing that I'd been thinking about moving back to the Bay Area. Wait, what? Are you serious? In this moment, the sky above me felt like it opened up to deliver a gift right in my lap. I rejoiced in my full body for the first time in weeks like I had finally come up for fresh air after drowning in seas of fear and grief. And Shilpa said she'd happily reserve the space for me whenever I'm ready. In the days and weeks to follow, I practiced trusting that I am supported and that I don't have to know exactly how, when, where, or what. Day by day, things fell into its own, not always my own, place. Nejma gave me clear communication as I made space for her to be heard that she did not want to go on a road trip, camp in new places, live in a tiny house in the Bay Area, or leave what she's known. It was a painful choice to make for her sake, but we eventually returned her to the kind and welcoming woman we adopted her from. Nejma is now living her best life on a farm with a bunch of dogs and one loving human who she loves too. I checked in recently with Ina, the woman who we returned her to, and Nejma continues to run and play and be as loving as ever. Nejma showed me what kind of mother I could be and I'm so grateful for my time with her. I allowed my move to be an invitation to minimalize my life and take only what brings me joy. My art supplies, books, some clothes and shoes, and a bunch of houseplants, basically. And I did do a road trip, rooted in self-trust and transformation, stopping along the way in Santa Fe and Sedona, a journey that was also so divinely assisted I rented a car and got an amazing deal on a Jeep Grand Cherokee with tinted windows so I could off-road in comfort while my stuff remained safe. I stayed in a luxurious Santa Fe home of two friendly folks with an artful aesthetic who welcomed me in for free. My loving friend of 14 years, Nadia, met me along the way where both my grief and glee were fully present and we had an inspiring experience hiking amidst magical red rocks and admiring the clearest of night skies. As challenging and painful as those months were, I was and am so profoundly guided and supported in ways that I don't even know. As I opened myself up to the relief of actually not having to figure it all out within the confines of my own mind, I feel free. I've been living in the tiny house, what I've been calling my womb cocoon, aka casita soluna, now for almost four months. I'm close to the people I love and who love me. I'm gestating, healing and resting, creating and manifesting. I am trusting while not knowing much of what's to come. There have been and will continue to be abundant opportunities to surrender to what I don't know, to choose to believe that I am assisted by forces far beyond my own power and to use my mind to ask questions and to humbly allow revelations in divine timing. I share the story from seven months ago as a reminder to me and to you if it serves you. We don't have to know. Surrendering to not knowing can be a beautiful opening to expansive and unfathomable possibilities. 
and a way to actually collaborate with the present moment, with others, and with the universe. Maybe sometimes we need drugs or a rock bottom moments to bring us to our knees in unabashed acknowledgement of how we don't know. Maybe we don't. Maybe a podcast episode or an essay is enough. I don't know. May we acknowledge all that we don't know. May we find freedom in that time and again. And may we open ourselves up to unknown possibilities beyond what our minds can even perceive. If you found resonance with this podcast, go ahead and subscribe and write us a review. This helps us significantly to get the podcast out to more listeners like you. Thanks in advance.